How's it going, everybody? This is Chris. Welcome to episode 107 of X-Lapsed, where hopefully for the last time we're going to be covering a giant size issue of X-Men here. Uh, let's get right into it. we got a lot to talk about today. This is Giant Size X-Men Storm, number one, which had a November 2020 cover date. The story is called Disintegration, written by Jonathan Hickman with art by Russell Dodderman. Colors, Matthew Wilson. Letters, VCs, Ariana Marr. Designs, Tom Muller. Edits, Bisa White-Sabalski. Cover price, $5. Went on sale September 16th of 2020. Alrighty, well, we open by flashing back to what brought us here in the first place. Uh, If you all remember, uh, that techno-organic virus has been ravaging Storm's body. Though, uh, I guess if you were... If you missed only two issues from the entire Dawn of X run, uh, you might not know that, because it's only mentioned in this and two other issues. Now, it's worth noting, we covered the issue where the virus was uh, discovered as being a thing back in episode 51 of the show. I mean, it's episode 107, so that's a long-ass time ago. It's also worth noting that the this techno-organic virus that is ravaging Storm's body is not the same sort that exhibit in the phalanx or even cable. So this is a whole nother boring strain of it. So, here we are with Jean and Emma. They're chatting up our sickly Storm. Now, Emma suggests that Storm just uh, quit fighting. Just allow herself to die. After all, she'll be back lickety-split, right? Now, Jean is completely repulsed by this idea, and rightfully so, right? But thankfully, she doesn't mention that she herself dies all the time, right? Because we've talked about that low-effort sort of stuff here before, haven't we? And thankfully, they sidestepped it this time out. Now, the ladies are interrupted by the arrival of Monet, who's got an idea on how Storm might be saved. First, double-page spread of creds followed by our roll-call page. We're going to be focusing on Storm, Jean Grey, Emma Frost, Monet, Cypher, and Phantom X. We jump ahead to later, as Doug and Monet are looking for someone. And it's someone who we already met during the last Giant Size issue, but what are you going to do? Now, they break into Ned the AIM Beekeeper's house because, well, they need to get access to the world, and I guess they know he knows how to do such a thing. Now, he's shocked to see them because he's expecting Phantom X. And, uh, and to be fair, they yanked his door right off its hinges, so that's a little surprising. Now, he also makes some cute comments about how Phantom X is paying him to, quote, double-cross his super-evil science organization, which I'm sure caused somebody on social media to wet themselves in delight, because... Ugh, okay. Now, we jump ahead to Phantom X's arrival, and we get another too-cute-by-half scene, during which he and Monet haggle over how much the X-Men are going to have to pay in order to get into the world. 
Finally, Storm's had enough, as have I, and we get this story moving. Now, the scene isn't near as funny as I think it's supposed to be, but it's Russell Dottoman, so it's beautiful to look at nonetheless. So, Ned the Beekeeper plops a coin into a wall, which I suppose is an entry point into the world, and our team steps on in. Now, the world, as boring as I find it, looks really, really cool under Dottoman's pencils and inks. Now, there's this weirdly shaped place in the distance, which appears to be under attack by these strange eyeball monsters that are flying around and blasting it. And naturally, this is the exact place that our team must go in order to rid Storm of her virus. So, bada-bing, bada-boom, it's fight time. We get to see Doug enrobed in warlock skin, which is pretty cool. He's, you know, how he... He usually has the warlock arm, right? Now he's just totally covered in the techno-organic mesh. Uh, Monet penances up, which I still don't care for, but I guess I should probably just accept. Then Storm uses her powers to sweep away the rest of the eyeball beasts with a great wind. Then Phantom X's brother shows up and kind of just stands there. Ned loads Storm into a machine to begin the separation process. Then the eyeball cavalry arrives on the scene to... uh, Try to get rid of our X-Men here. Monet tries to hold them off, but cannot. Thankfully, though, just as the baddies arrive at the machine, a fully healed Storm emerges from it. She then, I assume, takes care of the beasts. We don't really get to see a whole lot of it, but we gotta figure that's what happened. Now, as the dust settles, the machine starts to act up a little bit. And so, Ned sprays a weird mist onto it, which seemingly collects all the techno-organic hoodoo and solidifies it into a small... I don't know, it looks like a chess piece. Maybe it's a chess piece, I don't know. Phantom X asks his brother if he's ready to leave the world. Naturally, he's not. He plainly states that he's never gonna leave. And so, Phantom X agrees to remain here with him. Not only that, but Ned, the AIM beekeeper, decides to stay in the world as well. You ask me, these are both value-added moves. If we never see either of these guys again... It'd be too soon. Now, just as the X-Men go to leave, Doug notices something about the weird chess piece. He realizes that it's sentient, alive. It speaks to him in a language we don't understand, but he probably does. And he tells it that he'll uh, he'll see it around. And that's that. Next episode, the other half of our X of Tens Part Zero, and the final Dawn of X Wave 1 number 12, it's X-Men. But... Let's talk about this giant size issue here, shall we? And uh, there's going to be some vamping involved because uh, it really isn't a whole heck of a lot to say, right? But would you believe that the issue we just looked at is a perfect issue? It totally is. The internet wouldn't lie. Well, maybe the internet would lie for retweets and clicks, but that's beside the point. Now, this entire giant size endeavor, the five issues we covered here, it just screams page filler to me. And at 25 bucks for the lot of them, I think we need a little bit more than that. Um, I mean, hey, at least with this one, with Storm in the title, it is Giant Size X-Men Storm, we actually feature Storm. So it's got that going for it. We can't always guarantee that in these stories. What it also has going for it is the art, which is spectacular. And the only reason I'd ever tell any of you to spend your hard-earned money on this issue would be to own the art. Now, I ask you all here, um, does anything scream afterthought, like a potentially fatal plot thread for a major character being kept out of 
every book we see her in except for these? I mean, this is like X-Men Unlimited sort of stuff. And as loath as I am to begin a sentence with, quote, I think we can all agree, but I think we can all agree that X-Men Unlimited was unnecessary filler made to exploit completionists and squeeze every last dime out of a loyal readership. I tell you, recently I was on an episode of Source Material Live over at the uh, Rattledge and Broadcasting and W2M Networks, and we were talking about a recent Star Wars miniseries called Bounty Hunters. Now, let me just say this straight away. I have precious little interest in Star Wars. Really couldn't care less. That being said, I still view Star Wars as being this mythological story, you know, something that you would put on a pedestal. Among the best of the best as it pertains to science fiction, which might sound completely ridiculous to those more in the know, but this is just the direction that I'm coming to this from. And so, we uh, read this Star Wars Bounty Hunters comic from Marvel not too long ago. I think it's, I think it's still going on, uh, as a matter of fact, so it's very recent here. And we're reading this, and I was just gobsmacked as to how they would dilute the Star Wars product and franchise by putting out a series that, in my opinion, served no purpose, didn't need to be made. Then... In talking with my co-host for that episode, I learned that this is only the tip of the iceberg in as far as diluting the Star Wars name. And despite not being a fan of the property, you know, I liked the first three movies when I was younger, but that's about as far as my fandom went. So not being a fan of the property, I still felt as though I lost something in learning that they're just diluting the hell out of this property, this product. I was no longer, you know, the wide-eyed innocent I was just moments before, you know, holding this franchise in such high regard, or esteem, I guess, from afar, uh, to having the far-too-late revelation that uh, these are nothing more than money machines, and Disney is just going to keep cranking that lever till it falls off. If I can relate this to our X-Books, with the post-Hoxpox X-Men, I was expecting... An all-killer, no-filler approach, right? We're going to do this right. And I suppose my brief absence from all things Marvel may have restored a bit of my childlike naivete, or maybe I'm a glutton for punishment, or maybe I have some sort of twisted disappointment fetish? I don't know. I'm taking the scenic route here, and I apologize, but I figured that everything that happened in this family of titles was going to build upon itself and actually matter. There wouldn't be exploitative titles. There wouldn't be a nouveau X-Men Unlimited book. I was wrong. We had Fallen Angels, a book that hasn't been and probably never will be referred to since. We had Empire Colon X-Men, which was a whole other thing. We've had a half-dozen meandering one-and-dones in X-Men Volume 5. And we've had these giant-sized series of books which, in my opinion, are kind of the polar opposite of all killer, no filler, right? This is all filler, no killer. And, well, maybe, maybe we can excuse these giant sizes as being the artist showcases. There's still no reason for them to exist as overpriced standalones. I mean, these could have been regularly, regularly priced issues of X-Men Volume 5. And if that were the case, we would have gotten them in quicker succession and they would have felt more as though they actually mattered. I mean, Storm 
one of the one of the biggest characters in this entire X-Men property was dying during this, and it's never mentioned anywhere except for the Gene and Emma book, the Fandom X book, and this book. I mean, Storm is a major character in Marauders. They never mention the fact that, oh yeah, by the way, she's dying. We never heard anything except for these books. I, I mean, let's let's talk about that for just a second here, the Storm dying thing. I'm going to guess that this whole shebang kind of came out of Storm running into Serafina way back in X-Men number one. So, uh, and I hate to be a broken record, but why not just let this story play out in the pages of X-Men then? Maybe because Marvel wanted an extra 25 bones out of the, their most loyal consumers? I, I don't know. And again, I'm, I'm sorry for vamping here. There's just not a whole lot to say. Storm is sick, Monet knows about the world, they go to the world, they plop Storm into a machine. Bada-bing, we're done. You know, chop a buck off this issue, and I might be a little bit more forgiving, but for an overpriced and weirdly disjointed run of books like the giant-sized books have been, I can't recommend this, other than for the art. Which, I mean, these are the artist showcases, so that's probably the point overall, but uh, it is a gorgeous book. Russell Dodeman... Phenomenal artist uh, Rod Reese in the last issue I mean, if nothing else These have been very, very nice to look at uh, Let's go back to my wide-eyed innocence For just a minute here um, Looking at the giant sizes As a cluster of books here The five of them I really thought that elements From the other giant size issues Were going to come into play here I thought there'd be something to do With Lady Mastermind You know, who was rescued During that laughably mistitled Giant size Nightcrawler issue even though we already saw her arrive on Krakoa back during Hoxpox. Uh, I also thought maybe there'd be something to do with Emma's new sentinel-headed island. But nope. Nope to both. So disjointed, so unnecessary, just eh. I guess overall, this was a very, very nice book to look at. But as a story, wholly unnecessary. Um, your mileage may, and, and hopefully does vary. I don't think we needed these books, and I will probably never look at them again. Um, now, just a few episodes to go till we hit Exit Tens, so let's hope that I don't decide to bust out a merry X lapsed in January week between then and now just to survive the trip there. Fingers crossed that uh, it'll be smooth sailing from this point on. But uh, that's all I got to say about this giant size issue. Apologies for being negative if you find them being overly negative. I just uh, don't see a reason for these to exist the way they are. But uh, hopefully uh, you enjoyed them better than I did. Let's hop into the mailbag here, which, uh, hey, if you have any uh, you know thoughts on these issues, please feel free to write in and we'll cover it in the mailbag. Uh, we're going to start with Damien, who's talking about X-Factor number two. Uh, now, Damien says, It's interesting to me that you rated X-Factor number one higher than me, and I rated number two higher than you. I suppose it shows that Chris' problems and Damien's problems are two different beasts. What I liked about this issue was the focus on characters. The way they interact with each other and their reactions to the Mojoverse were revelatory. I find myself returning to the theory that Krakoa is removing inhibitions. It was one of our big theories surrounding the Crucible and also came up in discussing the Scott-Jean-Logan relationship and the reactions to death and resurrections. Maybe Leia Williams was told that the characters had fewer inhibitions, and she's taking it to its logical conclusion with Dakin. Dakin. Uh, Damien votes Dakin, but he has no idea how it should be pronounced either. Uh, Damien continues. 
Removing inhibitions from someone who is already uninhibited would cause the kind of behavior we see here. It would also explain the fact that the team are openly criticizing Dakin Dakin. Uh, they are not politely allowing him to do what he likes in his private life. That's definitely a theory I can buy into. And it just it just kind of stinks that we need to we need to concoct that, you know, outside the book here. It's not clear in the book that that's why the characters are acting this way. It's It certainly makes sense, but it makes me feel like we're doing the job of the writer here. We're writing these stories now. We're making... We're filling in the blanks that really shouldn't be left blank. Um, you know, part of me can't shake the feeling as though much of this volume of X-Factor is being written for a very, very specific audience, for the most part. And that audience is, like, Leia Williams' Twitter followers and uh, the legit or connected internet comics reviewers. Now, this X-Factor number 2 was one issue where I actually decided to subject myself to the comic book reviewer aggregate, simply because I came away with it with such a strong distaste, right? I suppose I just wanted to see where my thoughts stood alongside the rest. You know, sometimes, you, not for validation so much, but to maybe educate myself a little more. Maybe to see if I am being too hard on a book. Because when I when I dislike a book to the point that I really didn't care for this issue, it bothers me. Because I, I worry that I'm overreacting. I'm always going to take someone else's opinion as being more valid than my own. I mean, there are people listening to this right now who I conferred with after reading X-Factor number two to be like, hey, what did you think? You know, just because I wasn't sure I wanted to be so negative about it. And if I could be helped in any way to see it a different way, I was going to take it. So I went to the comic book reviewer aggregation site, and the X-Factor number two page looked like far too many Rotten Tomatoes pages that we see these days. You know, the paid-for critics who likely got the issue comped by Marvel and would like to keep getting issues comped by Marvel all rated it extremely high. While the commoners, like myself, who most likely paid the four bucks for the thing, rated it extremely low. And trust me when I say, Marvel and DC do reward for better-than-good reviews, and they do threaten to punish and withhold swag for less-than-stellar reviews. Trust me when I say that. And I mean, I get different strokes for different folks. And we all have our preferences. But when I see stuff like that, where the folks who are getting the free stuff are saying it's great, and the people who aren't are saying, eh, maybe not, I become suspicious of the integrity of reviews. On both sides. Don't get me wrong here. I'm not pointing fingers to one side or the other. With as many, in my opinion, phony 10 out of 10 scores that there are, I'm sure there are people out there just review-bombing the things to in their minds, level the playing field, right? So the tens and the zeros, you get rid of those. Hell, you know, get rid of the anything below a three and get rid of the nines and tens. That's where your truth is going to be. That's where your honest reviewers, in my opinion, are going to be located. Now, Damien continues. Another element I really liked in the story was the sense of place. You get a clear idea of how it feels to enter the boneyard and how the space operates. Following Aurora as she enters a building works very well. Again, when they get to Mojo World, we get to see how buildings relate to each other, and you can clearly see their progress or lack or lack of towards Spiral. Very good points. Very good points here. And we're going to talk a little bit more about the art here, because on second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, however many looks I gave this, um, 
the art is starting to win me over a bit. The art is starting to win me over. Um, Damien continues here, I also loved the art. I find David Baldion's work so expressive of character, and I think he does a great job of making the different characters distinctive. It's interesting that during Merry X-Lapsed, you were enthusiastic about Joe Majuara, but you seem to find Baldion's style too much. I think he fits the material so well. Can you imagine Lionel Yu drawing this? It would fail on every level. Yeah, I don't want to see Lionel Yu drawing this. I sure don't. Um, no, I'm, I am coming around on David Baldion's style here. Uh, it is, it is a, uh, what is that, what is that saying I'm looking for here? Uh, maybe an acquired taste? I don't know. Um, I will say it's probably not for everyone because it is, it is different. It is stylized, right? That's the word we use, stylized. But I am coming around to it here. I do wish he would stop with the roll eyes on everybody. I mean, everybody's rolling their eyes constantly in this book. But uh, I am coming around to it. I am coming around to it. Uh, Damien continues with, It's also great to see the beginning of a personality being, being given to Northstar's husband. His reaction to seeing Aurora resurrected is the most depth I've ever seen from him. Sad but true, right? I mean... It's such a shame, looking back, that Marvel felt the need to rush the romance and relationship between Northstar and Kyle. I think his name was Kyle. Uh, like they did. I mean, it was, it was, it was definitely all about beating DC to the punch. But still, such a disservice to their relationship here. I mean, I. I did, we didn't need to see them go through a, a really long courtship and a long engagement. But give us something. Give us something here. Don't just say, here's a guy, okay, now they're married, bada-bing, bada-boom. I feel like they really, really just ignored uh, some very potentially special moments that we could have shared with this couple here. And to make it feel more organic, make it feel more real, and to let us all celebrate it. Instead, it was just like, okay, gotta, we got to get to the ceremony so DC doesn't do it first. And that's just the way it was. But... Here we are, what, about ten years later, and we're finally... I mean, we finally find out this guy's name. So there's that. <laughs> Damien wraps up with, Anyway, until Dakin, Dakin becomes celibate, make my next lapse. Which I think is a very, very, very long time from now. So we're going to be riding these airwaves together for quite some time. And I couldn't be happier about that. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on a very divisive issue, Damien. Uh, next... Evan Bevan's uh, discussing another issue that I didn't like. I mean, this. why do I still do this show? I feel like I hate everything. Do I hate everything? I hope not. Uh, we're going to be talking about X-Men number 10. Evan says, I'm not going to try to change your mind on X-Men number 10, because I pretty much agreed with you. Vulcan is a character I wish I'd never read about, mainly because his origin in X-Men Deadly Genesis felt to me as a parody of grim and gritty comics that was rejected for being too disturbing to be funny. I don't think I intentionally read anything with him until the latest X-Men number one, and I certainly groaned when I saw him there. I do have a bought-on-sale War, War of Kings trade I haven't read yet, but that had more to do with Darkhawk and the Guardians. Now, my history with Vulcan... A bit on the shallow side myself. Um, you all know me. If it has anything to do with out of space, I check out. So I didn't read War of Kings. I know I own the Emperor Vulcan miniseries that might be a part of that. I don't know. But that's only because I'm a completionist and an idiot. Uh, but I'm fairly certain I'll never actually sit down and read it. Now, outside of Deadly Genesis and the current year stuff, I want to say the only Vulcan I've read was during the 
675-part Rise and Fall of the Shi'ar Empire by Ed Brubaker that ran in Uncanny X-Men probably, what, 15 years ago? Which, believe it or not, I think I actually sort of kind of enjoyed. It's been 15 years, but uh, when I think about it, I don't wince or cringe, so that's a good thing. Evan continues. X-Men number 10 felt like it could have been told in eight pages. Yes. But it was the first time in limited exposure I didn't actively dislike Vulcan. The idea that he wants to be better than what he's been, that has potential, especially since I do dislike what he's been, I so dislike what he's been. And Petra and Sway have potential as well. The mutants drinking a drinking heavily bit is very much overdone, but I can understand it with these two more than most. Krakoa may offer a clean slate, but these are two mutants who died on their very first mission, on Krakoa no less. Their teammates survived and eventually became X-Men, Darwin more or less, and an intergalactic emperor. Their new homeland is the place that killed them, and their only connection to anyone is hanging out at the Summer House, because one of their only friends is related to the Big Shots. That didn't come across in the story at all, and given that AA meetings on Krakoa must be packed, their boozing doesn't stand out. They're forgettable characters, and this is coming from a guy who recognized Lifeguard in X-Force number 9. But they are in story too. I don't care for the issue, but maybe these pieces could be better used in the future. All very good points. And, I mean, just like we were talking about with the inhibitions in X-Factor, had this been better explained in the issue itself, and not just by using our own headcanon to make it make sense of it, I'd probably come away with it with a you know with a better taste in my mouth. Uh, but we don't get that sort of explanation here. We're left to use, uh, we're we're left to formulate these stories and fill in the blanks ourselves here. We it's left to us to add pathos, right, and to make this boozing session stand out as something different from the Skate 800 other boozing sessions we've seen on Krakoa since Dawn of X began here. This just seems like more drunk mutants, which I, I don't need to see. Had their troubles been explored a little bit better, had we drawn that line there, it's like, okay, we're living, we're, we're, we're all living because of the island that killed us, right? The enti- Our entire people are wrapped up in the thing that killed us our first time out. Give us that stuff. You know, give us a little bit of that. Don't don't leave it to us to fill in the blanks here. And maybe, maybe cool it with the drunk mutants. Because if we didn't get drunk mutants every time out, maybe this scene would have meant something. Maybe we would have been like, wow, why are they drinking? Why are they self-medicating? Why are they doing that? And it would have been a little bit easier to uh, to see it as something novel and different and, and worth paying attention to. Where instead it's just like, hey, there's two more mutants with a blender. Oh boy, here we go. But uh, thank you so much for sharing your thoughts on that very divisive issue there, Evan. Uh, Next up, a less divisive issue, but perhaps some interesting food for thought in the next couple of emails we have here. First, Andrew in Belfast is going to share some thoughts about Exlapsedination, which is our Sunday special show running right now where we look at the Extermination miniseries uh, that came out in 2018 or so that allegedly sends the original five time-displaced mutants back to where they came from. Wherever it was that they did come from. We'll find out as we work our way through here. Now, Andrew says, I hope all's well with you. I've been blazing through a week's worth of back issues from the podcast and wanted to drop you a quick line on the topic of the Extermination miniseries. 
In the show, you commented on the time travel possibilities and the story issues thrown up by the return of the young X-Men back to their original timeline. Although I'm really not a fan of comic book movies, they never come close to the comic book art form for me, your comics did remind me of that scene in Avengers Endgame where the flaws in most time travel fiction were pointed out to Ant-Man, and he utters my six-year-old's favorite taboo line of, So Back to the Future was just a bunch of BS? <laughs> now, if you're not listening to x now one of the ideas I floated there was... What if Brian Bendis' original plan for the original five was to use them as a sort of in-story device to give the present-day X-Men a sort of reboot? Like, the time-displaced original five, they arrive in the present, right? Right after Avengers vs. X-Men. While here, they learn everything that happens to them. Everything that's going to happen to them in the interim, from the time they were yanked to present day. Then, they go back to the past with all that knowledge. And perhaps they make some different decisions because they're educated on what's going to happen. And those decisions might then be reflected in the present-day books, if you follow. Like, if a young Jean knows that she doesn't actually become the Phoenix, what would happen? Now, if Jean doesn't die, does Scott meet and marry Madeline Pryor? Does she get pregnant? Does she give birth to baby Nathan? How would things like that make the current year books look? Stuff like that. That's the that's the question that I floated out there, and that's something I'd love to discuss further because it's there's a lot of possibilities there, right? Uh, Andrew continues. You're right, though. We can, I think, only assume that our original team is, is time-sliding back to the 60s era with full knowledge of the developments in X history. Maybe the fact that they're only informed of that history rather than living it means they aren't fully abreast of every development in detail. But it sure did make me think about the time loop issues that could have possibly been used by Hickman to tee up his do-over of the X-verse in hindsight. Now there is the other reason I was so taken by this idea. Now if you've been listening to X-Lapsed from the start, you'll know that I began this endeavor with a lot of trepidation. I was worried, probably too worried, about what was going to be booted from the X-Lore and what was going to be allowed to remain here. We have the the, uh, the Ten Lives of Mora. Don't know if everything happened in the most recent one. Well, we, I, we didn't know back then, or I didn't know back then. And I did many, plenty of uh, like mental gymnastics trying to figure out which t- actual timeline we were working with. Of course, we're dealing with the actual one, right? But I didn't know that then, and I perhaps held on to those theories a bit too long. But sending these kids back could have been the catalyst for a big, huge change. Maybe a hox, pox, docks, rock, socks sort of change. Of course, it didn't go that way, but it could have. Andrew continues. My main reason for writing, though, is to highlight the fact that you may wish to throw issue three of the current series of champions into your dollar bin pile if you see it at your local comic shop. Because in that issue, founding member of the champions from the first Mark Wade series, then young Cyclops, comes to rescue his former champions as part of, the, of a Civil War-style storyline which sees their numbers being hunted down under a superhero registration-type storyline. The Cyclops that appears just in time to rescue his former teenage friends at the end of issue number three is the fully aged-up Cyclops 
who obviously still remembers the fact that in his young future displaced form, he was close colleagues with his now persecuted teen teammates. So we know that there is a memory of the Bendis displaced teammates' time spent in the future that survives the time tra- the travel back in time and their lived experiences to the present day. Whew, Ant-Man was right about that time travel storyline. Now, that I didn't know about. I didn't know that uh, the young Cyclops came back any time since, right? So we're gonna definitely going to have to track down uh, Champions number 3, and we will talk about it here. It'll depend whether or not it's going to get its own full episode, but we will definitely talk about it because that sounds very intriguing, and I'd love to hear. I'd love to see exactly what this uh, formerly young, now aged Cyclops from the past, future, past, present. Um, <clears throat> never mind. Never mind. Andrew wraps up with anyway. Just wanted to pop that thought down in an email before it evaporated from my tired dad brain. And until the verbose Leia Williams decides to opt for a silent giant size issue, make my next last. Well, thank you so much for letting us know about that issue of Champions, because that's not something that would be on my radar at any point. So uh, definitely going to keep an eye out for that so we can talk about that a little bit more. And for thoughts on the uh, x lapsedination uh, big question of what would happen if... These original five were from the 616 timeline, sent back to the past with all the knowledge of everything that happens. What decisions do they make? Do they make the same ones? And I I know there's all sorts. I'm not very good at time travel. So I know there's things like branching, branching timelines. There's things like no matter what you do, it's going to happen the way it's supposed to happen sort of approach. I don't know none of that. Uh, That's, that's far above my pay grade and mental ability. So, uh, I'd love to hear your theories. <laughs> and uh, we're going to talk about one right now with our friend Jeremiah talking about x lapsedination. He says, Chris, I listened to the latest Extermination episode and found your what-if discussion to be very interesting. I have to agree that a story involving the original five from the past going back to their own time with their current knowledge and seeing the impact of that happening on the present or even recent past X-Men history would make for a good story. I enjoy what-if stories for the most part, and one I've always wondered about since I first heard about it, possibly on your show, was what if Chris Claremont or some other writer had followed through on his original idea to use Sabretooth as Wolverine's father. I'm not saying it's a good idea, but it's just one that could be interesting if it's explored in some kind of what-if scenario. Now this one. This one's straight out of my wheelhouse, uh, because it was among the bigger comic books shop scuttlebutt rumors when I came into the X-Fandom. And because of that, I've always kind of held it in, in fairly high regard. It's, you know, it was Who's Cable? Is is Sabretooth Wolverine's father? We had a handful of mysteries as I was coming in, and those, you know, it's never as good as when you first show up, right? So those were the biggies, and there's still things that kind of tickle me. So... This one actually has been explored further, and boy howdy do I wish it hadn't have been. There was a book called X-Men Forever. Well, there was a couple of books called X-Men Forever, but uh, one was an ongoing. First one was a uh, Avengers Forever style story where it was kind of just playing with continuity. Fabian Niciesa wrote it. Um, It was a really fun time, probably right around the turn of the century. Then there was this ongoing... And uh, the ongoing here seems to have gone under a lot of folks' radars, back in the day and now. Now, this book was the What If 
Chris Claremont didn't leave the X-Books back in 1991 book. Which was more or less Marvel's answer to, hey, we've got Chris Claremont under contract, and as per the agreement, we need to have him writing two books per month. So where can we put him where he'll do the least amount of damage? And the answer was the twice-monthly X-Men Forever. And it wasn't great. In it, the Is Wolverine Sabretooth Sun storyline was revisited and fleshed out a great deal, and uh, it wasn't great. (laughs) Jeremiah continues, I think one of the problems with a character like Wolverine, Cable, or even the Joker, whose origin is never explained, is that it gets to the point where their past is a complete mystery, and then it becomes their gimmick. Then, when a writer or editor wants to draw a line in the sand and commit something to the character's backstory, I'm looking at you, whomever made the decision to give Logan bone clothes, you end up with half of the fans thinking the addition or change is great, and another half who thinks it stinks. 100% true. 100% true. And again, I came into the X fandom where cloudy backstories were kind of the soup of the day, right? We knew bits and pieces about characters like Wolverine and Cable. And every so often we'd spot another breadcrumb on the trail. But they were just that. They were just breadcrumbs. They were hints. They were theory fodder. I think it was Stan Lee who said, Never give the fans what they think they want. Which is a train of thought we might need now more than ever before. Because uh, you're absolutely right. In drawing that line in the sand... Yeah, it's hard to get that genie back in the bottle, right? There's not really an organic way of going back. Sometimes it's about placating a writer's ego, allowing them to be the one to define a character. Sometimes it's about beating Hollywood to the punch, as it allegedly was the case with uh, Origin, with Wolverine, right? Sometimes they work, sometimes they don't, but in every in every situation, whether it works or not, we do lose something in the mystery, right? The mystery is... As as much of a gimmick as the mystery can become, we certainly lose something when it's not there anymore. And I think for reasons like that, it's like why I'm so cued into how is Hox Pox Docs going to wrap up, right? What, what's going? We have all these like mad theories that we're going through for uh, for these books and X Labs now because I think so many of us miss the days of the mystery. And now we have one. We don't know what's going to happen next. And I think that's why I think that's why we enjoy and we stick with these books. Uh, as frustrating as they can be sometimes, we stick with them because it's all going to it's all going to come back around and we're going to be here. We're going to be theorizing. We're on the ground floor and we're all experiencing it together. Now Jeremiah continues. Back to Sabretooth. I think that if this was explored in a what-if scenario or a limited alternate timeline, it could have been somewhat interesting. There could have been some sort of edible tilt to the story that for whatever reason Wolverine has to stop Sabretooth from doing something awful, and the only way to stop him would be to kill him. But he learns that he's his father, and now there's guilt about what he has to do. Or maybe Wolverine's berserker rage has gotten the better of him, and he commits some unspeakable act and becomes a pariah to the X-Men. Sabretooth hears about this and confronts Logan, telling him that he's no different from his father, revealing that he is indeed his father, and look at how alike they are. These are cliches and not very original ideas, but I think you get my point. In the hands of a talented writer, the idea could be explored in a what-if story, without committing to the idea to the main continuity and effectively messing up years of good stories. And yeah, I agree. If the story was handled as a shorter what-if subject, a sky's the limit. Could have been a great story. 
actually having it bubbling as a subplot in X-Men Forever? Yeah. <laughs> now, there were plenty of ways they could have done this, pre-origin, of course. But you never know, we do have that X-Men Legends book coming out in just a few weeks, I think, where the first arc of that is going to be something to do with the third Summers brother, which is another one of those rumors right out of my wheelhouse. So it wouldn't surprise me if somewhere down the line we have some sort of Wolverine Sabretooth deal <laughs> going on with some sort of family tie. Weirder things have happened, right? So we'll stay tuned for that. But thank you so much, Jeremiah, for uh, for checking out X Lapstination and for sharing some uh, some food for thought here. Now we're going to wrap up with a letter from our friend Jesse D. Young, and he is talking all about clones. Now he says, while reading Jody's letter a few episodes ago, you brought up how Shatterstar was not Dazzler's baby. In X-Factor, Volume 3, Issue 259, we actually do learn that Shatterstar is Dazzler and Longshot's baby, and not only that, but due to time travel, Shatterstar and Richter are there to deliver baby Shatterstar when Dazzler goes into labor early. It's also revealed that not only is Shatterstar Longshot's baby, but that Longshot is also a slightly altered clone of Shatterstar, making Shatterstar the father of his father and Longshot the clone of his son. Man, I love Peter David. And I think you summed up that story better than I ever could. <laughs> it's so weird. I'm sure we've all read comic stories that make like perfect sense, right? But only while you're reading it. While you're reading it and while you're in the mode, it makes perfect sense. But then you close the issue and you try to actually explain it to somebody else, even someone familiar with the subject matter, and you just become completely lost and babbly. That's how I would be trying to, to describe this Shatterstar Longshot X-Factor clone baby daddy thing. Hell, I, I've been on the air in similar situations trying to explain stories that, in my feeble mind, made sense. But actually trying to convey that information onto other folks? Forget about it. <laughs> I've been on some shows live. That's a scary situation. Uh, Jesse continues. I've also been pondering the cloning clones issues that we have been facing and what came up in Hellions number 3. You'd mentioned something about Laura being a clone of Wolverine, and if I remember correctly, she was actually half a clone, but I may be wrong. So maybe she would pass as being able to go through the resurrection protocols. I think what the Council is taking into account is that they have strict guidelines that, except for Proteus, there are no duplicates of currently living mutants. Since Jean is alive and Madeline's a clone of Jean, it would be redundant to bring her back. But there are others who we can question. And yes, you are right. You are right. I had to confer with the Marvel Wiki for clarification, but Laura technically isn't a clone of Wolverine, but instead a genetic twin. A genetic twin. Hmm. It was apparently revealed during one of like the 5500 Death of Wolverine miniseries that Marvel was cranking out a few years ago that uh, Laura had enough of Sarah Kinney's DNA in her to make it so she's basically the daughter of Wolverine and Sarah. Which, uh, I hate to muddy the waters here, and I don't want to pull a Kurt Busiek during the, the Spider-Man clone saga and ask, what of the skeleton in the smokestack, but... If we're only making it so clones shouldn't be re resurrected, then, uh, what of Joseph? He wasn't a clone of Magneto, but a copy, right? Hmm. Yeah, we're never going to see Joseph again. Never mind. Never mind. Uh, Jesse continues. Gabby is a clone of Laura, so she would she get brought back if she died? The Stepford Cuckoos are all clones of Emma, and at some point they did bring back at least Esme and Sophie, who were dead pre-Hoxpox. Or were they? 
Then what about Longshot being a clone of Shatterstar? I think Jean just doesn't want to deal with her husband's ex. Or is she still married? Because they were married until death, do they part? But they've both died at least twice since they were married, so they are they twice unmarried? Whew, all great questions. Um, I'm pretty sure... I'm pretty sure we were down to only a couple of cuckoos there for a minute. So yeah, in part, the five-in-one was resurrected. I'm not sure how or when, or if it had anything to do with the current-day resurrection protocols, but definite food for thought. What happens if Esme, or or, or uh, Sophie, or or Numa, or Dumma, whatever, what did Deadpool call one of them? Bumma? I think Bumma. What if Bumma dies? Is, is Bumma going to get brought back, or is she too clony? Now, I want to say that Gabby, a honey badger or scout or whatever the hell they're calling her, she is a clone. So it would be interesting to see what happens should she pass away. And Longshot, I mean, that's a weird one, isn't it? I guess the hoodoo with Shatterstar actually makes him kind of a mutant, sort of, right? I don't know, I'm still confused. I am I come from the day and age where Longshot was somebody that we would, all us high and mighty X-fans would always correct people. Because people would say he was a mutant, and we'd be like, uh, 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 no, he's not. No, he's not. But now he is, kind of, right? It was, always a little, it was always Longshot, Juggernaut, and Deadpool. Those were the three that people would be like, oh, those are my favorite mutants. It's like, no, no, those aren't mutants at all. But uh, Longshot might be now. I don't freaking know. Uh, Jesse continues. You may not realize it yet, Chris, but you've started a book club, and I get more excited to hear the feedback and discussions from Damien, Evan, yourself, and so many others than the content of the books themselves. It's awesome to finally have others to talk with about comics without my wife falling asleep while trying to explain the Doc Hawk being the superior Spider-Man storyline. You're just amazing for doing this. Thank you very much, Chris. Man, um... It's a good thing this isn't a video show because I'd have the stupidest smile on my face right now. That that really made me smile. Thank you, Jesse. Thank you so much. I, I mean, I think I've said it before. I, I don't. I never thought anybody would want to engage with this program, but I'm absolutely taken aback by the fact that we have such an awesome little community here, and uh, it it means more to me than I, I than I can adequately put into words um it's just so cool it is just so cool that we 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 are a you know we are a book club here and we do share these ideas and we're sharing these experiences and soon enough we're all going to be at the same point right when i catch up with the rest of y'all and get through x of tens we'll be at, we'll be at the same point we'll, we'll all be experiencing everything for the first time together i really can't wait but uh this stuff like this really makes this whole project worthwhile here um it's not always easy to, to put together an episode, especially when, like I said, the books sometimes are lacking. Uh, sometimes I feel like these books are, you know, you're supposed to read them the one time, spend 10 minutes with it, put it aside, get to the next one. And instead of doing that, I'm spending an entire day with an issue, which is probably the most backwards way to go about catching up with something. But uh, no, your, your comments mean so much to me that, that that's. That's why I keep doing it. Uh, just knowing that there's going to be folks who want to talk about this stuff is is all the reason I need. So thank you. Thank you all so, so much. Now, uh, Jesse wraps up with, So until we find out that Glob is Maggot's brother from another mother, make my next lapsed. Stranger things have happened. You never know. Have we seen Maggot? I don't think we've seen Maggot since, uh, since Hawksbox. 
Eh, maybe one of these days he'll come back. But uh, that is where we're going to leave the mailbag today. Thank you all so much for sharing your thoughts here. Um, going to the you know ex-lapsedination uh, question, just all these divisive issues that maybe I'm being a little too hard on, and, and talking about uh, the resurrection protocols here. That's all awesome stuff. Just really, really cool, and it really means a lot to me that... Uh, that you all want to engage So thank you, thank you all so much And if uh, there's anyone out there who would like To be part of the mailbag and part of the show Please feel free to write and reach out You can find me at Ace Comics on Twitter Or you can send me an email At weirdcomicshistory at gmail.com You can check out blog posts And show notes over at chrisisoninfiniteearths.com And xlapsed.chrisisoninfiniteearths.com You can check out our little Facebook group And leave all sorts of comments All sorts of whatever you want Pop pictures in there do your thing. It's 90s X-Men on Facebook, and you can listen to all the shows on the Chris and Reggie radio network channel thing that we have at chrisandreggie.podbean.com. Well, that'll do it for episode 107. Probably going to go about 50 minutes this time out, so I guess it's fitting it was a giant-sized issue because it's a somewhat giant-sized episode, which I would like to thank everyone so, so much for sharing with me and sharing your time. And until next time, as always, I'll talk to you all again real soon. See ya.